As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to another classic replay from Unbelievable. I'm Peter Byram. Today we go back to 2014 when Christian philosopher Professor Keith Ward and atheist philosopher of science Michael Roos debated some of the issues raised by a new DVD documentary series called The God Question. It explored whether advances in science are undermining or supporting belief in God. Alongside audio clips from the film, they discussed whether the human mind can be explained by material processes alone, religious experience and free will. And funnily enough, I actually sat in on that one in the studio watching it unfold and it was a real privilege and hilarious at times. And a reminder that if you want early access to watch episode 3 of The Big Conversation Season 5, in which Christian author Nick Spencer and atheist science writer and broadcaster Philip Ball debate whether science and religion can tell us what it means to be human, then sign up at thebigconversation.show and we'll send you the link on June 30th, a whole week ahead of the episode's official release date of July 7th. So that's thebigconversation.show. And now, let's join Keith Ward and Michael Roos, hosted by Justin Briley from 2014. Well, uh, first of all, a very warm welcome to you, Michael Roos, uh, joining us on the line from Florida. Uh, first time having you on the show. Thank you for being with us today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Justin. I'm always, you know, I'm always glad to do these things and particularly to cross swords with somebody like Keith Ward, who's such a nice chap and so completely wrong about everything. (laughs) Well, I can see it's going to be a fun programme right from the outset. Um, Michael, do you want to give us a little bit of a potted history of yourself? Have you always seen yourself um, as an agnostic atheist? Um, No, I mean, as you can obviously tell from my accent, I was born on your side of the pond. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the 1940s and 1950s in a Quaker family actually and went to a Quaker school in York so I grew up as a very you know I won't say hardline Protestant because I don't think Quakers are hardline on anything (laughs) but um, certainly I grew up as a dedicated Protestant let's put it that way and I I, I guess around about the age of 20 or so I I lost my faith Um, it would be I, I started doing philosophy and it would be nice to say that it was you know I read David Hume and suddenly it all fell apart. I don't think it was quite that uh, straightforward, but um, anyhow, it it has gone, although I'm not a a new atheist in the sense that I've I've never hated Christianity. I've always felt that my Quaker background is the most important formative thing in my whole life, Mm. and so I've always been, you know, deeply, deeply thankful for, for what I've got. I thought I'm now in my eighth decade of all things. I thought that I'd maybe be coming back to God by now, but, you know, I find that a gentle agnosticism suits me very well indeed. And, if, you know, with Bertrand Russell, I'm going to say if, if God does exist, sorry, God, not enough evidence. Oh, well, we've, we've got an hour to persuade you now, so who knows what could happen. <laughs> but, um, look, um, this is one of the things that I think you're quite well known for, is sort of not being at all in step with the current, as you say, new atheist outlook on life. Um, in fact, you're one of their large, biggest critics, I would say. What, what, what disturbs you about the current trend in in atheist thinking? Well, I think, uh, of course, one thing is I feel very strongly that one can, in fact, reconcile science with religion. I mean, I've always said that. And uh, as somebody who's a a very strong evolutionist who lives in the American South, (laughs) where, of course, evolution is under huge amounts of pressure, uh, but my position is, is very important to me, both 
what shall I say, philosophically and politically. So uh, that's one place where I, I differ with the new atheists. I, I suppose the other place I differ with them is that I, I have a very mixed feeling about uh, the, the worth of religion. I mean, I can see that religion has done some awful, awful things over the years. But you grow up in a Quaker family and you see the dedication of, of, of friends. And it's very difficult to say religion is just nothing but uh, unalloyed evil because it just simply isn't. So I, I, you know, I presume, like the new atheists themselves, as much as anything in these things, it's psychological as much as philosophical where I, where I find myself. Mm. Well, we, we may well go on to talk about all kinds of nothing buts uh, during the rest of the programme. Um, uh, but it, let's introduce our other guest today on the programme, Keith Ward, who is a former guest on, on the show. Um, Keith, thank you for joining me again today. Okay, it's a pleasure. It's yep. great to have you back. Um, I suppose your journey is sort of in some ways rather the opposite in as much as I think you came to faith in your sort of 20s whereas Michael, Michael says he sort of lost his that's right and I came to faith largely through philosophy because uh, um, although David Hume is a very good philosopher indeed I felt he uh, really had a quite uh, incoherent view of things uh, and that his uh, colleague um, or at least person better known living at the same time Thomas Reed uh, uh, was more in line with theism and I, I think most philosophers have been theists, most well-known uh, philosophers uh, of some sort anyway, mm. so philosophy persuaded me there probably was something rather like God. Yes, yes, <laughs> I, I mean I think one of the things we might touch on today is, is also the uh, facts of religious experience and, and how yep. we make sense of those in terms of the brain and consciousness and so on. I mean, presumably... Yes, go ahead, Mike. I think, seem to remember you telling me once, we talked about this, that you did in fact have a personal experience. I think you said... I've Christ, had a few personal experiences. very much a turning point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, that, now you've raised that, uh, that qu subject, Michael. Um, Keith, I was going to ask... Presumably it's not just a sort of purely intellectual assent that you gave to your Christian faith. No. It, it I, was I, an experience that no, you, you I, had. I do think God is quite a good theory, but, I mean, if God was just a theory, then I wouldn't be a Christian <laughs> and I wouldn't commit myself to uh, a part of the Christian church. Uh, so experience is important, and I think... Uh, if you don't have an experience of God yourself, uh, you have to you know, think, well, sometimes for some people it's a really life-changing and in a good way experience. And if it happens to you, you can't ignore it really. You can just say what you like about it, but you know that something's changed your life. It doesn't have to be God, but uh, that just seems to be an explanation which is the most mm. natural one. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, we're, we're going to talk about particularly today mind and consciousness, which is an area you've spent a lot of time looking into theory of mind and so on. Um, well, to get us into this, I think it might be good to, to perhaps play a little section from the DVD that uh, we've been looking at both this week and last, The God Question. It's a, uh, three documentaries, really, on DVD. Um, both Keith and Michael actually feature in the, uh, the part that looks at the mind and consciousness. Um, the power of the brain is an extraordinary thing. And, and here's just a clip from the DVD looking at some of those aspects of what it means to have a human brain and the, the power involved. Any journey into the fascinating and mysterious world of human consciousness should start with what we already know about the power of the human brain. The major component of it is the neuron, which is basically a device for sending information from one place to another. And I, it has 10 billion neurons in it. Each neuron is like a small computer. The brain is a phenomenal organ. Even simple physical actions require complex brain power. Just the process of walking requires a remarkable degree of control. When we run, it's even more complicated because we're quite literally flying between each uh, foothold. Uh, and that requires even greater degree of control of the limbs and body posture by the brain. In terms of something still more complex, say, proving a, a theorem, uh, composing a symphony, we don't really know how to measure the complexity of a feat like that. There you go, just a, a section from uh, the Mind and Consciousness uh, DVD, part of the God Question set of documentaries. Um, uh, it is an extraordinary thing, that the human mind, the human brain. Um, Michael, uh, as someone who obviously has, has looked into these kinds of areas at, at some level, um, 
what, what have, have you ever been challenged at any level that on your essential view of, of atheism that this can all be explained at some level without needing to invoke any kind of level of of, of reality right. beyond well, beyond this I, one i i think uh, first of all let me try to i mean i i laugh uh, i was once asked on a court of law what my position was i was appearing as an expert witness and i ended up by saying you surely can understand that i'm not an expert witness on my own religious beliefs and i <laughs> I, I feel a little bit that way even to this day i mean i feel at one level, I'm a kind of an agnostic, except agnostics are so often people who are just not interested. My wife's an agnostic, but she couldn't care less. Well, I care a lot. I think I would describe myself as being atheistic about the central tenets of Christianity, however. Mm. Um, so the answer to your question is, yes, I find uh, consciousness one hell of a challenge. It, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't point me to Christianity, um, but it does point me to uh, really very much being an agnostic or a skeptic or something along those lines. I, you know, I, I, I don't know sort of person, because I, I, I honestly think that we have not solved the body-mind problem, and I'm becoming one of those people who started to get drawn to what I believe is known somewhat trendily as the new Mysterians, who think that maybe we'll never solve it. And I'm, I honestly wonder whether that's not the case. I mean, there are some problems we haven't solved, like the origin of life, and I think we're on the way to solving them. I mean, maybe not in my lifetime, but I, I, I know what a solution would look like. Mm. And my problem with the brain is, or the mind rather, is I don't know what the hell a solution would look like, <laughs> let alone whether it could be justified. Well, well let's bring um, you in, Keith, at this point. Maybe could you lay out some of the the issues here before because we, yeah. we've probably jumped in uh, a bit ahead of ourselves um when some people like daniel dennett for instance um american philosopher uh says that the mind is purely a result of physical you know, we can give a physical account of it what's your problem with that why do you not believe that that we can get to a a, 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 a purely material naturalistic right. explanation well there's a whole nest of problems here and you have to deal with them one by one the most basic one is uh, i suppose philosophically i belong to the traditional british empiricist position which says what it says is all knowledge begins with experience and if you take that seriously you're going to say well experience you know your consciousness of things sights sounds and your own thoughts and feelings your experience of those things is where you start from so nothing can ever say that it doesn't exist so if you had a really hard line what's called an eliminativist view mm. uh, that consciousness doesn't exist there are only neurons well that undermines starting from experience for a start so one of my problems with the, that view that it's all the brain is that the brain is actually uh, something which we hypothesize. I mean, we, it does exist, but we come to believe. We haven't always believed that you think with your brain. Right. Um, Aristotle thought people thought with their stomachs, basically, which some people probably do. But uh, you think with your brain is a discovery. You discover that. But your experience, the fact I am sitting here seeing and feeling and hearing certain things, that's immediate. We all know it. That's where you start from. Mm. So that that's a starting point. It's only a starting point, but it, it makes you ask the question, well, what is real in the end? Is, is it experience or is it uh, some objective world of some mysterious sort that you postulate? And it leads me to say probably experience. And that's if you're going to say that experience, well, you know, you're on the road towards something like God. What, what makes you say that? Because are you saying that when we experience something, it's, it can't be boiled down to a sort of neurological explanation yeah it can't be eliminated i mean it, it, there's some relationship obviously and that's uh, that's what michael was saying uh, this is the hard problem of consciousness mm. uh, but actually i don't think it's a problem for in that sense it's not a scientific problem because it's not resolvable scientifically so it's actually it's just that we're puzzled about what the relation could be and i don't think there's going to be i think i'm agreeing with michael i don't know why i don't i don't think there's going to be a scientific explanation of how consciousness well th having said that there are people who are suggesting there are i mean what do you make for instance michael of of people like daniel dennett who who say you you can in the end get to a, a physical explanation of of all of our mental states well, I mean, my, my attitude, and I think, I, as you say, I got a bit ahead of myself on this. 
but my feeling is that certainly I, I just don't die, buy in what Dennett has to say. I, I find myself more empathetic at a certain level to Patty and Paul Churchland, who, of course, take much the same kind of stance as Dennett, feeling that you know, we know an awful lot about the brain now. We know a lot about how the brain affects thinking. And they feel that given enough time, we're, we're on the way to solving the mind-body problem. And I, I feel very empathetic to what they're saying. But my problem is, I just don't see where it's going. I, I think we, we've learned an awful lot about about the brain. We've learned an awful lot about how the brain affects the mind. Obviously, we have. But uh, there's, a, there's a gap there which uh, was there with, with Descartes' dualism, and I just don't see that it's been bridged. So that's where I differ from Dennett and, and, and from the Churchlands. Having said that, Keith and, and, and Justin, I don't think it's a question of out of the scientific fire and into the religious, uh, <laughs> or out of the scientific frying pan and into the religious fire. I, I just don't see that invoking God helps us at all. I mean, it, it, that's my position, and maybe I'm anticipating again already, but uh, I don't see anything in my ignorance about the mind-body problem which makes me think that naturalism, I, I prefer to use the word naturalism rather than uh, materialism, but uh, that naturalism is, is, is wrong. <laughs> well, I, I think I wouldn't bring God in straight away, of course. I'm going to leave him uh, to come in suddenly <laughs> at the end. But uh, I think that... Uh, oh, come on, Keith, he's there with us all the time. He's, he's got the whole world in his hands, you know that. <laughs> I know that, yes. So, uh, um, but it, it's, it's the fact of experience being a basic you know, what philosophers used to call an ontological feature of reality. It's there, it's, it's not reducible to anything else, it's, it's not reducible to matter, it's, it's related to matter. Uh, and what I think the ba- a very basic religious thing, without bringing in God yet, is to say experience is known more immediately and directly by us to be real than matter is. Matter is a relatively abstract term. It's a hypothesis. You know, mm. things exist not unobserved and they're something like what we see or perhaps they're not. You know, it's, matter is the mystery. So my, my position is, without getting to God straight away, that matter is a bigger mystery than experience and consciousness. Consciousness is not actually... Well, I, I mean, at one level, Keith, <laughs> I mean, again, maybe I'm not the person you should have on this show <laughs> because obviously I agree with you. I mean, you know, the so-called fundamental question, why is there something rather than nothing. I think it's a genuine question, unlike people like Wittgenstein. And again, I I, I don't think we can solve it. Uh, The only thing is, I don't think you can solve it either. (laughs) No, I can't solve it. But it it gives you a ground for saying that the nature of reality, this is why I call myself these days an idealist. And that's the opposite of a materialist, as you know probably well, of course. But just an idealist is somebody who thinks that the real stuff of, of the world is consciousness. And, of course, getting to God from there is a short step, really, so I might as well take it. And it is that uh, if the reality which exists outside us is really real, it's going to be more like consciousness than it is like matter. Oh, Keith, 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 though, (laughs) you know... You're such a nice guy. I mean, I bump into you in that nice restaurant in Oxford, and you're so excited to meet, to see me and to introduce me to your wife, and particularly to your son, that you're obviously so proud of. And there you are. What do you mean you're an idealist? They're as real as, you know, as anything could be. I, 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 ah. You you can't go that far, Keith. Yes, I, yes, I can go much further than that. <laughs> uh, I think B- Bishop Barclay, as we call him in Britain, is uh, as his name actually is. Um, he's called Berkeley in the States, I know. But anyway, <laughs> Bishop Barclay uh, is not as stupid as people think. And he didn't. Barclay didn't say that there's no nothing exists when you're not looking at it. He said if there wasn't mind consciousness uh, in existence, then there wouldn't be anything in existence. And that's what I mean by idealism. That, well, before we get too deep. Deep down into this uh, <laughs> this area of idealism, so on. Um, we, we've already broached this subject of the the hard problem of consciousness. Something that does obviously get tackled in the the, the God Question DVD. Let's just hear another clip from the program, uh, which just has a, a few people ruminating on some of the issues that this whole area of consciousness brings up. Oh no, we are conscious, but we actually don't know what consciousness is, and that's called the hard problem of consciousness. We don't have the basic idea of what a thought is. I cannot tell you molecularly or chemically what a thought is. We do not know what a memory is. 
I know a little bit about the molecules that are involved. I know that neurons are involved and some chemicals are involved, but I cannot tell you physically what a memory is. We understand fairly well how brain cells work and how they're linked together, and we know that they're linked through a bit of electricity and some chemical processes. Yet we don't know how from the activity of these cells we have this amazing phenomenon of thought, awareness, feelings, emotions, everything that makes us unique as individuals. There you go, just another clip from uh, the, the DVD, The God Question, uh, particularly the Mind and Consciousness documentary within that. Uh, if you want more info, thegodquestion.tv. But it does um, nicely sort of encapsulate this issue uh, around how, how we get from a brain to a thought. Um, and we that's kind of what we've been talking about just now. But, but Keith, for you, uh, could for, for those who say, but yes, a neuron electrical activity, that's what's producing that image of a red apple. What's the problem with that for you? Why, why does that not follow? If you well, like? I've got no problem with that. I, I, that's a causal relationship. You say mm. if the brain is in a certain state and the neurons are firing in a certain way, then as a matter of fact, by some law of nature, you will have a visual appearance of a red apple. So that's if you get the one, X, mm. the brain, then you get the side of the apple, that's Y. If X, then Y. Mm. But it, it's a pretty fundamental principle of David Hume and other philosophers like him that you can always separate the the cause from the effect. So you could say you could have Y, the side of the red apple, without a brain. In other words, there could be, philosophically mm -hmm. speaking, thoughts without brains. Um, but, uh, but doesn't, I mean, what do you think of that, Mike? I mean, it doesn't science show us that, it, given all our experience, we only have thoughts when we have brains to do some thinking? Well, uh, the trouble is, you see, I mean, once you, you reduce everything to, you know, just some kind of internal uh, mental picture show, then you've still got the, the, what shall I say, the spade work, and, and Keith would agree with me here, of distinguishing between fantasy and reality. So I'm really not sure that my, my own personal philosophical position is I'm not sure that saying, you know, I'm an idealist is a tremendously helpful uh, way of going at things, because still, uh, Keith, the idealist, is going to distinguish between the real son that he had sitting with him at, uh, at, at lunch that day and the imaginary daughter that he had sitting with him at lunch that day. And he's going to say, no, of course, the one was real and the other was unreal. And um, so, as I say, I, I, I just wonder what calling yourself an idealist in this kind of context is what 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 it's actually doing but what is uh, doing it? I, yeah. I want to say that we're both making a distinction <laughs> between reality and uh the imagination fact and fantasy if you like uh why bring in idealism uh, just to complicate it and of course even more <laughs> why bring in god okay well i think the reason for bringing in idealism is because so many people think we know that the world is made of material things and matter we know that and some people People, they say, then add on God as a superfluous extra. Whereas I'm saying that's not true. We don't know that the world is material. Actually, consciousness is much more fundamental than that. So the world, uh, you don't add on God as an extra. God is necessary for anything or something like God, something mind-like, something conscious is necessary for there to be a universe. But, that's but, that's, but that's what see, I really here think. Here we go, Keith. <laughs> you, you mentioned Bishop Barclay yes. and, you know, not seeing things behind you. I mean, I'm talking to you and then I turn around and the question is, do you exist at this point? Now, it seems to me I've got three options. One, you just pop out of existence. You don't exist. Uh, then pop back again as I do another 180 degree half turn. Yep. That's one thing. A second is that God is, is keeping the whole thing in, you know, up because you only exist because God is looking at you. I know you, you're a thinking being and, and that complicates it, but if you don't like you, put a rock in or something like that. The third is, why not just go with simple common sense and say, basically, you exist when I'm not looking at you and you exist when I look at you and why bring God in? <laughs> because, Michael, 
50 years of philosophical contemplation has taught me that common sense is no reliable guide to anything. Uh, oh, come on, Keith. Now, I mean, I know that you've been an Oxford professor all your life, but you, you can't trash common sense just because it's, it's expected of you. I can. I, I think common sense is very unreliable. According to common sense, the sun rises in the east and sinks in the west, and the earth is probably not um, no, round. No, no. According to, you know, what we see, but I don't think that's any more i don't think common sense has to be you know just pure sort of john locke perception you know of the of the crudest kind in in the essay uh, i think common sense can bring in oh, i mean i'm enough of a kantian to think that common sense can can bring in all sorts of mental what shall i say constructs or ways mm. of looking at things oh is god commonsensical is it is it common sense to believe in god well that I mean, it's certainly in my neck of the woods it is. So I'm certainly not. I'm not saying that common sense is infallible. No. I'm not saying that common sense is always right. But I, what I want to say is at least let's start with common sense. Well, I don't mind starting with it, but I'd give it up pretty quickly because uh, <laughs> common sense... Will... Well, as I say that, you know, I'm not sure that this is... You know, I, 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 Regis Professor, I'm not sure that the Queen quite intended that when she made you a professor. But she's not very common as well. <laughs> I tell you what, we're going to go to a quick break, gents. Um, I I want to keep talking, though, because for me, this kind of all involves... We've been talking about, you know, if I see you and you see me, and and it raises the question, well, what is the you that we're talking about at this point? What is the... uh, And and I know, for instance, Keith, you've been a defender of of the idea of the soul, uh, you know, um, substance dualism, that kind of thing. Well, I'd like to go there as well. Um, We're going to hear in the next section of the programme also a little bit of clip from, again, the God Question DVD um, on the area of near-death experiences um people who say they've had uh, out-of-body experiences when their brain been brain dead and so on is is that any evidence for the existence of a soul be interested to hear what our guests have to say on that keith ward is with me today on the program christian philosopher uh he's uh, very much been a defender of the idea of um another realm of reality rather than just a physical reality that many atheists speak of today. Michael Roos is our atheist agnostic guest, uh, a philosopher of science at Florida State University. And we're, we're asking questions around mind, consciousness and the God question. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Andy Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Perhaps as we get back into today's programme, folks, um, we'll just hear another section from the God Question DVD on mind and consciousness. Um, Here we are, uh, as as the narrator talks about the apparent existence of near-death experiences and whether they shed any light on the issue of consciousness. But investigation into the experience of dying can go one step further. It focuses on patients who have been clinically dead and then successfully resuscitated. Signs of breathing? Yes. He is, right. Marvellous. Their reports of experiences during the time of clinical death is crucially important in shedding light in an area of deep mystery. Death is defined when the heart stops beating and as a consequence a person stops breathing immediately and the brain also shuts down. There is no electrical activity, you get a flat line electrical silence state. And so at that time we would expect there to be no activity of the mind or consciousness. However, what we have observed is that a proportion of people do indeed have these 
ability to have thought processes, memories, reasoning, and a very detailed recall of what had objectively happened when they had reached the point of death. Now this is extraordinarily interesting, because if the brain isn't working, but yet people can gather information, then it's absolutely fundamental. This underlying question is of great importance to science and to the God question. If you switch the brain off and you can demonstrate scientifically the mind also switches off, then you've proven that the mind is produced from the brain. If on the other hand you switch the brain off and the mind and consciousness is still continuing, then you've demonstrated that it must be a separate uh, undiscovered scientific entity and that's what we're trying to do. There you go, just another clip from uh, the God Question DVD series uh, on mind and consciousness in this instance. If you want to find out more, um, do check out the website, thegodquestion.tv. And uh, if you've got anything to add to the conversation that we're having today between Keith Ward and Michael Roos, I do encourage you to get in touch with the show. You can email unbelievable at premier.org.uk. I just wonder, Michael, firstly, um, what you make of these accounts of near-death experiences and so on. I mean, something like this happens, and oh my God, it's aliens from outer space. <laughs> and uh, you know, then you get a little more sober reflection, and you realize that it's light waves or somebody, you know, some plane you didn't know about. And I just don't see why... I mean, first of all, is the brain supposed to be completely non-functioning entirely? Or is it just, as you know... Is it that, that the body is not working or something like that? Mm. Do people actually have completely non-functioning brains with no, no activity whatsoever and then they come back to life? I, I, it sounds to me kind of implausible, to be perfectly honest. Okay. But even if they did, and mm. even if they said, oh, well, we had these sort of memories, I don't see where you go from there. I certainly don't see where you go with the God question, and I certainly don't see where you go with the Christian position, which I always understood involved the resurrection of the body. I mean, at least that's what St. Paul tells us. <laughs> okay. So, as I say, I'm, I'm dubious about it as science, I am worried about it as philosophy, and I think it's totally irrelevant to Christianity. <laughs> okay. I mean, there, there has been a bit of a um, trend of, of books recently, Keith, um, that purport to be people's accounts of experience, having sort of mental experiences when they've been in some kind of coma experience or, or brain dead and so on, brought back to life. Have you ever sort of wanted to explore that or, or thought it's relevant to your field of inquiry? It's not something I put at the center of uh, faith. Um, I think it, what's interesting about it to me is that people are at least uh, thinking that it's possible that you might have mental activity without brain activity. They're not saying it's an incoherent thought. Mm, I mean, if mm. you were a materialist, I mean, you wouldn't even bother to do the experiment because it's absolutely an incoherent idea. Right. So I think um, the question of whether there can be mental activity, thinking, feeling, uh, not knowing and willing, uh, is relevant to God because that's what God is. I I mean, God is a thinking, feeling, willing, knowing being which has no body. So the relevance of the question is, could there be such a thing? Yeah. Is it possible? And uh, if somebody uh, even thinks that it is possible physically, uh, worth making an experiment on it, well, actually, that's, a, mm. that's a, a step to saying, well, it's not that it's impossible. It's a question of fact. What are the f- what I, I mean, presumably you're, you're therefore open to the idea because you do believe in a soul. I mean, you, you, you hold to what's technically called, I think, substance dualism. Is yeah, that- uh, well, I'd qualify that a bit. I mean, I, I'm actually um, uh, um, a, a dual aspect theorist, technically speaking. That means I think that um, consciousness and brain activity go along with each other. Right. Uh, but, two but, aspects of one thing. But, but once the body dies, the brain dies, do, do you believe there is still an, an immaterial soul that, that survives? Well, I'm very similar to Michael's knowledge of St. Paul and the fact that we'll be resurrected mm. uh, as bodies. Uh, so what is important to me is not that the soul can float off on its own, as it were, but that the soul could be the same person, mm. could be re-embodied in a different form of body, because that's what St. Paul says, a yes. different, different a glorified body. So the question is, could you have um, the same sort of mental activities without the same physical brain? It would be a different physical brain the laws of physics will be different presumably so that that's the question for yeah, me. yeah it's not quite substance dualism if i can put it like that it's not you've got a soul without anybody it's could you have the same person in a different body with a different brain but but, but you do believe it 
at a fundamental level that, that God, as you mentioned, is is kind it's of brainless. a definition of of a well, yeah. brainless. But, but I don't know what you mean, but <laughs> I, is, is a, fi- a not a, an immaterial. Yeah, I think it's mind. Uh, essentially, I think that's what Christians believe. Yes, yes. So, so, so it's important to think. Step one is: is that even possible? Yeah. Could you even think of that? Mm. And. Um, and uh, I think these experiments show it's thinkable, but of course you've got to. Yeah, it's a matter of fact. You've got to just yeah. wait and see. What, what, what do you make of my of, of Keith's uh, thoughts there, then, Michael? Well, I think the trouble, part of the problem we, we've got here, is that Keith, like a good philosopher, is thinking about possible scenarios, mm. and then suddenly it slips subtly or not so subtly from possible to reasonable and then you know from reasonable to i believe that it happened yeah absolutely and certain, even yeah. if <laughs> you know even if keith's position is is well taken and as i say as one who's you know fundamentally at a certain level really very mystified about the whole mind body problem i'm not i'm sufficiently warmly inclined towards some form of dualism, the idea that body and uh, mind are two separate substances, that I don't rule out as logically impossible what Keith's talking about. Mm. My question is, is it reasonable? And does this business of, of, of uh, you know, near-death experiences throw any light on it whatsoever? And that's where, where I start to start to say, well, now, hang on a minute, friend. Um, where are you going with this? Mm. What evidence have you got for this? And I, I, my, my problem is, I really don't see that these near-death experiences throw a hell of a lot of light on anything very mm. much. It, it, it's so easy to read back into these things what you want to pull out again afterwards. And that, that's what really, truly worries me. Um, so that's where I'm at. As I say, it, it, it's all very well. I do think that Keith needs... As you know, as a Christian philosopher, though, and I, I, I'm not saying we've got to do it now, Keith, but I do think it, it's incumbent upon you to lay out a little more thoroughly what your sort of ontology of God and humans and souls is, because uh, you say that God is is has no body or has no thing. What about us after death? Do you think that we don't have it any either, uh, or do you think that we really are resurrected in the body? In which case why not god resurrected in the body too you know he did walk in the garden when he you know found that adam and eve were playing around with fig leaves uh yes <laughs> but i um, i think the resurrection of the body is uh according to the new testament not the same body um just as the oh no well paul makes that very clear doesn't yeah, he i yeah, mean it's yeah, right. it's the spiritual body yeah so so that's okay so i don't think uh, many christians hold that god uh, has a physical body of any sort, although of course in Christianity he was God was incarnate in Jesus, but that's a more complicated issue. Uh, certainly, God is beyond, as the creator of the physical universe, is beyond the physical universe, and uh, so I think that 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 question is uh, is very relevant to the question of whether you can have a being which is not physical but which wills there to be something physical mm. Um, mm. and can think of it and know it. So that is a very important question. I, I, I've, I've noticed recently that um, as much as we've had people like Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris and so on beating the drum for a sort of physicalist view of uh, reality and the mind and, and so on, you've at the same time got um, a few people going against the grain. Michael, you sound like you're obviously uh, ag- somewhat agnostic on the whole issue, uh, uh, quite significantly um, Thomas Nagel published a book recently, Mind and Consciousness, Mind and Cosmos, sorry, um, where he seems to be edging towards saying, no, a, a purely material um, explanation of the universe does not account for consciousness, does not account for the, the apparent purpose and direction that this universe exhibits and and that, that we... he's not edging towards my friend <laughs> he's gone right over the edge on that one <laughs> i don't think nagel is is edging anywhere on that i think nagel is you know is flatly saying that the whole approach of people like dennett is wrong okay and, and obviously that's not earned him any um fans in in that camp but do you have sympathy with where he's going and can he call himself a an atheist anymore if you're starting to talk about 
Well, of course, don't forget, Thomas Nagel, and I mean, this opens a big can of worms. Thomas Nagel is calling for a whole rethinking of the whole way we, we think about the world, and he wants to go back to almost some kind of Aristotelian uh, teleology uh, against which to put everything. And I certainly wouldn't, don't feel the need to buy into any of that whatsoever. I, I'm much more comfortable with, as I say, going with somebody like Brian McGinn, who I think is a you know, complete naturalist and a mechanist in the post-scientific scientific revolution sense, but who says... I just am not sure that we're going to solve the problem of consciousness. I, I don't think God helps, but uh, I don't think we're going to solve it. And I guess that's basically where I'm, I'm at. I'm an agnostic on these things. But as I say, uh, whatever Keith says, uh, I just don't think that appealing to God takes us forward on this. Well, I don't think you need to bring in everything about God uh, at once. But uh, the, I wonder what you think of this thought, Michael, that if you say that you're a naturalist in some sense or you're sympathetic to it, you're saying that consciousness is really a, a natural property of matter. And if that's true, if consciousness is a natural property of matter, then matter is not at all what we thought it was <laughs> because it's capable of consciousness. So is there any well, long... That's why I prefer to call myself a naturalist. But, I mean, the point is, Keith, ever since, you know, the physics of the last century has surely shown us that old-fashioned uh, materialism or, or a matter of the, the, the kind that, let's say, somebody like John Locke believed in is, is simply not... Uh, the physicists of the 19th century believed in is just not on. And right. we know that there are interactions and, as it were, between matter and energy and things like that. So I, that's why I'm uncomfortable about talking about, you know, being a materialist in that yeah. sort of sense. I, I I'm mean, happy to call myself a mechanist, happy to call myself a naturalist. I but, mean, but then a naturalist... Materialism like, lets me talk about <laughs> electrons, I'm a materialist. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But if, it, if you're a naturalist of that sort, Michael, then God might be the natural, uh, total environment well, of... Be Keith, but this is a trick that you keep <laughs> playing on well, me, <laughs> playing on, on the listeners. I mean, well, you, you play it on me, and I'm, I, you know... I, I know this, but I'm worried about all these nice people on a Saturday afternoon who, instead of watching football, are listening to us. And, you know, you're sliding from, this is possible, to, okay, folks, believe this. No, I'm, what I'm trying to do is to stop, get away from the stereotype of God is this person who exists outside the universe and keeps interfering it and say don't think about God like that think about God as the conscious mental purpose of intelligent ground of the universe itself as uh, St. Paul says <laughs> well, you see this <laughs> takes us back to the early part of our discussion about idealism and now I see yeah. what you're up to oh you, you do oh, yes. you're <laughs> you've been rumbled <laughs> in, oh, I'm an idealist, and oh, I buy into this, and of course, as I said, I'm not sure that it, it takes us very much further, but once you're an idealist, you know, it's kissing cousin to God, and there yeah. you are, you, you pulled this smoke and mirrors on, on us. <laughs> is it smoke and mirrors? I mean, for, from what I'm hearing from Keith here, and correct me if I'm wrong, Keith, is, is not so much that you're trying to build a case for the, the Trinitarian God of Scripture, rather you're, you're poking some holes in in the materialist view yeah. and i know you you've disowned that phrase michael but but there are many people out there who do hold this view that the, all there is is matter in motion and that that simply does cannot be cannot follow from cannot the, the, the nature story. of our experience <clears throat> that, that that it doesn't make any sense fundamentally and so whatever there is it's not the story that dennett and dawkins and harris are telling us basically i think we might agree on that michael do we I think we might. I think we might, Keith. But you see, this is the thing. Because we agree on Dawkins and Dennett being wrong, it doesn't mean to say that we have... To, I'm therefore forced into believing what you believe. And I, no. I thought it was very interesting that, our, that Justin brought in the Trinitarian stuff and, you know, and, and said that you're not trying to defend this. I hope the Archbishop of Canterbury is not listening to this. <laughs> but, I mean, that's the, that's the problem, Keith, is you want to bring in a whole pile of 
theological ontology to back up your position, whereas I wanted to simply say, sorry, I just don't know, and I don't think that what you're doing is very helpful. Well, where I start from is not from philosophical theories, but from experience, and the experience of revelation, the experience of God in Jesus. So there's a basis in experience, which I believe to be the real root of religious belief, but your experience has to make sense. And that's where the philosophy comes in. You think, does it make sense? Could Could I be aware of some um, mental being uh, which is not physical. Is that a possibility? If you start from a f- position, all knowledge begins with experience, then one question which will come up is, is your experience limited to the senses and what comes through the senses? Or mm. could there be experiences of a non-sensory nature, of other minds, of other spiritual, mental, non-material beings? And of course, that's where my faith is actually based, on the claim to have experienced that. Well, one of one of the issues that does get tackled in the God Question DVD series um, that looks at mind and consciousness uh, is this question of religious experience, um, which we, we t- spoke about briefly at the start of today's programme. Let's hear another clip from the programme. Adding intrigue to the search for an explanation of consciousness is that across the world and in every culture, billions of people express consciousness of a higher power some call God. Religious belief, religious activity, religious emotions and sentiments seem to be ingrained into all of what makes us human. As far as we can tell, they've been around as long as there have been modern humans, and they seem to be in all cultures. Towering over this small, self-effacing high street is Ely Cathedral. This grand building represents a line of Christian heritage at Ely, stretching back to the 7th century. Ornate and vast, it was designed to make a statement about the power of God and to connect human consciousness to the spiritual world. I think people are surprised by that experience when they come here. Most of them come as tourists to see the architecture, and yet, amazingly, they discover something profoundly spiritual here among us. Somehow there is a a, a sense of God's grace and presence and a sense of being loved, which is a profound and meaningful experience. But is it all just electrons? That's the question (laughs) that we're asking on the programme today. Uh, Just a clip again there from the God Question uh, DVD series. Um, Michael, can we explain this, this vast range of religious experience across cultures and down history to... Uh, material causes, natural causes, essentially, does it boil down to electrons? Well, I, I mean, I'm not sure I want to go down to electrons, I suppose so, at some level, but I, I'd rather stay with things like uh, psychology or with evolutionary theory and say, obviously, that I would want to say that these experiences are, as David Hume said, uh, faces in the clouds, um, that I, I think we can explain these things because we have uh, certain evolved um, characteristics that, for instance, that we spot when something's strange and that sort of thing. If our proto-humans didn't spot these things, <laughs> we wouldn't be here. And I think that we've got, you know, combine that with vivid imaginations. And so I'm not really surprised at all that we get the kinds of results that we do. I mean, the question is whether these things are are worth going any further on. And, of course, again, we're getting into territory that Keith and I have gone over, mm. and you know, not just us, many, many times. I mean, how then do you distinguish, say, religion from, from science? Well, the thing is, the thing about science is it does seem to be repeatable, does seem to be universal. And, of course, the trouble with uh, religious experiences, uh, Muslims have one kind of religious experience, uh, Protestants have another, Catholics have another, and the, the Mormons, you know, have something completely different. So a, a chap like myself says, you know, I, I, I just don't think I want what, to get a lottery ticket in the first place. <laughs> OK. Um, Keith, your thoughts on this aspect? Of this? Well, um, I suppose that would mean that I'm uh, particularly afraid and susceptible to delusions uh, because of my evolutionary <laughs> makeup. But I don't know. Oh, Keith, come on now. <laughs> You're trying to make me feel awful. Well, that's an awful philosophy. Trick too. You know? <laughs> I'm well, it is devastating 
interesting argument, so you make me feel like an absolute <laughs> rotter. <laughs> no, it is true. If, if you give a complete... The, uh, you know I can't say anything nasty about somebody like you, Keith. Uh, no, yeah, so, so, yeah. Taking candy from a baby. That, that's, um, yeah, genetically implanted in you, I suppose. Really. <laughs> um, but in fact... Um, you know, people think about these experiences. You think about all the different religious experiences in the world. I think there's a good case to be made for saying you can identify similarities between the experiences people have. And as a good one-time Quaker, you, you, you know that it, the interpretation, the conceptual interpretation of experiences can differ a lot, even though there is a, a common uh, inner light, you might say, or something that, um, that people feel, a power greater than themselves, loving, uniting, etc. Every person, I think, yes. is the phrase. Yeah. That That's the phrase I'm looking for. <laughs> yes, very good. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, no, there's something to be said for that, and um, and we elaborate this with theological reflections, etc. And of course, they're going to differ. Um, because of philosophers do differ and uh, that's what human beings are like. But uh, the question of whether that experience is genuine or not, I would have thought, isn't there a, quite a good case? Now, I'm getting onto your ground here, so I'm getting a bit thin ice. But isn't there a good case for saying if something survives the evolutionary process of uh, weeding out uh, unhelpful thoughts, the things which survive are actually more likely to be the things which reflect truth? So if people... Well, I don't know whether they're things that reflect truth. I think that they may be things which are pragmatically useful. I mean, yeah. you yourself have raised the whole issue of cause and effect. And well, I think we're both on the same grounds here, that David Hume did show that there's no necessary, logically necessary connection. Yeah. But I think we'd be absolutely nuts in real life to say, well, David Hume's shown there's no necessary connection, so let's not assume that there isn't one. Mm. Um, I, what I want to say is there are certain things which are pragmatically justifiable, even if we can't give an ultimate logical explanation for them. That may be uh, not a bad argument, really. If something is pragmatically justifiable, you mean it works, it's good, it's uh, morally helpful, it, that may be quite a good argument for saying, why not adopt it then? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I'm interested that you bring in morally helpful, because one of the things that I believe, and you know perfectly well I believe this, is I don't think that morality is something with any ultimate justification or whatever. I, I, I'm on record as saying I think morality is just an illusion of the genes to keep us as, you know, as social beings. So I, I just don't feel, even with morality, that I need to bring God in here. Oh, well, now, there we have got something, because, I mean, uh, how would you, as a philosopher, um, decide whether morality was just um, uh, a hangover of some genetic uh, event in the past, or... or oh, Keith, you're doing it again! <laughs> hangover! I didn't say it was a hangover, I said it was an illusion. There's a difference between an illusion and a hangover. Hangover! Illusions can be quite good things. Hangovers are not good things, and you... I, obviously, you know... I, You've obviously never, you know, lips, that you've never been hungover, but, um, you know, us regular mortals. Uh, so, you, you, you know, you're trying to twist the, well, well, the whole what, thing. What's the point I, you're making, though? I, I just want you to, to conclude that I thought. Wanna say, I, I, I want to say, if you brought in morality. And I, and I think what you were trying to do was link in morality with God, which, of course, is a, a very standard argument. I mean, you know, it's one, for instance, we find in John Henry Newman. I mean, he makes a big thing of this. And uh, I want to say that I just don't even think that God is necessary for morality or anything like that. Because it's an illusion. I mean, Keith... What you're trying to say is, and we talked about pragmatic, I think you want to say is at some level... The only way that we can make, it, make sense of experience, both physical experience and social experience, is by assuming, you know, not the big fellow in the sky, but some kind of creative force or something like that. Am I, am I well, let, let's give Keith a chance to, to yeah, give, give us his um, thoughts on this. I mean, I think just as religious experience is fairly common among human beings, so is moral experience, in, by which I mean thinking I ought to do something, whether I want to do it or not, is just morally right for me to do that. And I, I would be... I'd be Beginning to get worried, Michael. If I thought you were really saying that morality was an illusion as well as God, um, it does seem to establish some sort of link between them. And if you take morality really seriously, you say it's not an illusion. It, it's true that you ought to do something. You are beginning it's to. It's only true within the moral moral system. I'm I'm a human being. I've got to get on with people. I have these feelings. 
And so I'm quite happy uh, to talk about morality I have, uh, and to work with morality like that. As a philosopher, I mean, I'm a Humean. Ultimately, it's all skepticism. But you know what David Hume says. But it's, it's, it's just you know, a, a social construct. God, psychology takes over. Play a game of backgammon, have a meal with your mates. And, you know, philosophy seems, what is it, strained, strained and cold. Mm. And basically, that's my position. I, yeah. I, I, I'm an ultimate, I really am a skeptic about these things. Well, I don't think you are in, in practice, Michael, actually. I think in, no, in practice... No, I'm not in practice, <laughs> no. but neither was David Hume. <laughs> no, but you make moral commitments. Now, I think this is one of the places where I'm skeptical about Hume, because uh, he, he, he himself made moral commitments. He was known to be a sort of a secular saint, wasn't he? Uh, a, a man of admirable moral qualities. Uh, but he made that commitment, but he didn't have any theoretical basis for doing so. It was just uh, the way that he'd been brought up. And I think when your morality is put to the test, that, that poses a crucial question. Am I going to do this even if everything in me is saying you don't have to do it? There's no reason you should do it. It's just a genetic illusion. I think if, you, if people began to say that, I really do think we'd be in we, we, a bit of a mess. We're going to take a break here, um, and we'll come back to... Well, we've, we've touched into morality and, and whether, you know, it is just an illusion of our evolutionary back past, uh, wh whether there is some kind of ultimate reality to our moral duties and so on. The kind of stuff we talk about all the time on this program, to be honest. You know, <laughs> we, go, we go down the deep end of the philosophical pool. So um, we're going to continue to do that on Unbelievable this afternoon. You're listening uh, to a discussion be between Keith Ward and Michael Roos, my guests on the program today, as we look at, well, mind and consciousness, but we've gone off in other directions too. Um, so come back again in a short moment's time as we conclude this discussion here on the program. Well, concluding our program today on mind, consciousness and the God question, we've been asking, does the human mind and consciousness provide evidence for the existence of God or is the human mind simply a product of purely natural processes? And discussing this with me today have been Keith Ward, Christian philosopher and former Regis Professor of Divinity at Oxford University. Find out more about Keith at keithward.org.uk. You can find his uh, many books and publications uh, there as well. Uh, Michael Roos is my other guest, a philosopher of science at Florida State University, regularly writes and speaks on science and faith issues. He himself, though, describes as an agnostic atheist. Uh, he sort of parsed that out a little bit on during the course of today's program as well. Uh, those have been my guests today, and if you want to get in touch um, and leave a thought yourself, um, I do encourage you to email in unbelievable at premier.org. UK. Be interested to hear what you've made of the conversation today. Um, and don't forget that uh, the, uh, the the DVD that we've been basing this and last week's programme on uh, is available to buy at thegodquestion.tv. Go and check out the various clips and bits from the programmes. Uh, you might be interested in seeing what's on there. Lots of um, scientists, thinkers, theologians, atheists and everyone in between have contributed to this series. So it's well worth checking out. The God Question. TV. Um, we, we sort of went off, gentlemen, into the realms of um, morality and evolution and that sort of thing. Uh, another area, though, that I did want us to, to tackle before our time was up is, is, for me, a really interesting facet of this issue of whether our minds are a, a product of a, you know, just a, a purely evolutionary story or, or whether there's some kind of purpose and mind behind the whole show itself that produces other minds that reflect it in some way, which I suppose would be the christian way of looking at things because it, it does raise that question well well if if you do have a purely physical brain producing the thoughts and so on does that mean that we're not really in control of anything um it, it, it's actually just chemicals and nature and the laws of physics playing themselves out and what and we again talking about illusions we're experiencing some illusion of free will that we think we're we're you know controlling things whereas in fact it's uh, it's sort of an autopilot process if you if you boil it down i think i think people like sam harris again have particularly championed this view of late um, and even suggested that experiments in neuroscience are confirming it as well what what's your view on this michael be interested to start with you I mean, I, I, let me just be professorial for a moment. I mean, as I understand it, there are two basic approaches to free will. One is the so-called libertarian position, and that's got nothing to do with uh, political libertarianism. But this is a view which thinks that we are free somehow 
over and beyond the causal chain. Mm. And the other is usually known as compatibilism, and this is very much the British empiricist position, which says that freedom and causal determinism are not in opposition, and that you can be free and yet at the same time causally determined. And uh, the, the thing is, and Keith will bear me out on this, is that Christians don't necessarily come down always on the libertarian position. And certainly Calvinists, uh, for instance, are very much <laughs> into some kind of determinism of, of one sort or another. Now, my own position is I'm a compatibilist, but I do believe in free will. I think that we are free in, in uh, a very meaningful sense. Uh, even though I think at some level uh, ultimately causal determinism lies behind it all. So, yeah, if you ask me, if God does exist, then I guess I want to say that he's responsible for everything that we do. I, I don't think quantum mechanics helps us on this. Mm. But as I say, I, I, I don't feel the need to bring in God. So I'm a causal determinist, but at some level I think that we, are, we have a dimension of freedom. <laughs> there I praise Dan Dennett. <laughs> Here, he once said, all the freedom that's worth having, and, and that's basically my position on it. Hmm. Okay, ha, ha, have you uh, managed to reconcile this issue of free will? Well, I, I agree with you, Michael, that uh, Christians actually hope, are divide into compatibilists mm. and libertarians. So <clears throat> Christians themselves hold different views on free will. Um, and I suppose the ultimate question for me about freedom is um, did the universe arise uh, by necessity, uh, just without anybody thinking about it or mm. wanting it to happen, or did it arise by thought and intention? And that would, that would so you would say it was freely created mm. Uh, mm. if it came about by thought and intention. And that seems to be what everybody everybody agrees about freedom. You're free if you do something, you know what it is, and you intend to do it, mm. and nobody stops you doing it. Well, that's freedom. So the, the theological question is uh, does the universe arise by or could you imagine it arising by thought and intention and uh, of course there's also the theological question keith about our moral responsibilities isn't there yes there the is. whole question yeah. of free will comes in there <clears throat> very much i mean to what extent let us say was hitler free to do what he did or was he just causally determined by his childhood and things like that i mean yeah. these are issues that we all wrestle with and not just yeah. christians but that i think christians wrestle with particularly given problems of evil and things like this i mean the difficulty here is that uh, most christians uh, believe in judgment for uh, good and evil and that the people will eventually live a life after death that is a result of whether they have done good or bad and they've been free to choose good or bad. So that's a sense that all Christians agree with. But it doesn't actually affect immediately uh, that philosophical question about freedom, right? Because Christians yeah. take both views of that. Sure, sure. I mean, do you think there is a problem for the, the physicalist as far as their their view that we do live in a kind of completely determined universe a, a, a causally determined universe and 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 the fact that they also want to as it were have their cake and eat it by saying but i've freely come up with this um idea in my head um they, they don't sort of see then that that idea itself must be a product of this deterministic universe and, and then how how can they yeah. say it's a sort of well, this Free, is, freely will rational thought, if you right. like. This is as hard as the problem of consciousness. I mean, the problem of freedom. And I see, philosophically speaking, I see no reason at all for thinking that the universe is deterministic, or that there are there are laws which cannot be broken, which every physical particle will always obey. I mean, I don't know where those laws would be. Who's supposed to make sure that nothing ever disobeys them? It just seems completely irrational. Hypothesis. Uh, so I don't see anything in favour of determinism. In other words, just philosophically. I mean, never mind about God. Mm. I just don't see how how you could ever justify the view that there are such laws which don't really exist anywhere, um, making things happen in a certain way. So I'm just amazed there are any regularities in nature at all. <laughs> and actually, I do think uh, I, that well, inclines me to God. Too, Keith. I really am. I mean, no. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm amazed at the whole 
issue of existence and and of laws. You're quite right. The question is, where do I go from there? And I think that as we come to the end of our discussion, I think it's been tremendously useful for me to to see how you and I, to use, you know, the old-fashioned language, we've got two completely different paradigms here. Uh, We've got the same, almost the same sort of experiences, and yet we want to interpret them so completely differently. And I think that's where, whether it's determinism, whether it's consciousness, whether it's morality, is we just seem to see things completely differently. And yet we're talking in the same terms. We understand one another, and that's that's a mystery about human beings too. We live in the same world, and we do make different interpretations, but we can see the moves we're making. Uh, and there are some people who can't see the moves we're making. But, but you know, Keith, and, and you're right, of course, at one level, and yet at another level, you're the most unmysterious man I know. You're just, you know, you're just such a nice, decent... Well, that's an illusion, Michael. And, you know, you're absolutely... One can read you like a book. Oh, well, I'm <laughs> but sorry. I mean that as a compliment. I really, truly do. <laughs> Well, we're probably going to have to draw things to a close. It's been great talking to you, Michael, and hearing how wonderful I am. <laughs> and, and, uh, it's been great to have you on the line, Michael. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm sure I'm sure we'll get you back on at some point down the line to uh, to have a dispute with someone again uh, about something. But but it was interesting to hear, hear the areas of um, commonality as well on, on this issue of mind well, and consciousness. Well, the thing is, unless you've got commonalities... You can't really discuss things. If you're just talking completely past each other, it gets kind of boring. Yes. It's where you share an awful lot <laughs> that the discussion gets, starts to get really interesting. Okay, well, it has been an interesting one today, and I thank you for joining us. Um, Michael, if people want to find out a bit more, is there a good place they can find out more about you, such as a website? Well, no, just type in Michael Roos. There aren't many Michael Rooses in, okay. in this world. And, uh, no, there really aren't. Uh, and uh, if you type in Michael Roos, as my wife says, you'll find all that you need to find and much, much more. Okay, that, that's the, the thing to do. Go to your uh, search engine, type in Michael Roos and find out what he does and, uh, and how you can find out more about it. Uh, Keith, thank you for joining me as well on the programme today. Right. Great to have you with me. Yep. Um, and... Uh, g- I look forward to perhaps seeing you again in the future as well. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion. I've got very fond memories of being there in the recording studio myself and watching it. And I recall Michael Roos asking Justin at the beginning before they began the episode whether it was going to be live or pre-recorded. And when Justin told him that it would not be live, that it would be pre-recorded and then played later, um, he said, oh good, so you'll, you'll be able to edit it out if I say... And I'll leave you to guess what word he used next. Let's just say I can't repeat it here. But that's Michael Roos for you. If you want to see more of Michael Roos and Keith Ward, they both appeared in separate episodes of season one of The Big Conversation. So head over to thebigconversation.show and you can watch them there. And while you're there, if you haven't already, why not sign up to the newsletter so that you can watch new episodes of The Big Conversation a whole week early, such as episode three of season five coming out at the end of this month and you'll also be able to access a lot more exclusive content there as well so that's the big show to sign up there that's all for today we'll see you next time for another classic replay of unbelievable <laughs>